Dr. Hinman has spent nearly 20 years in full-time practice as a psychotherapist and educator. In addition, he has been actively pursuing his own recovery as an adult child for the past 15 years. Cognitive perceptual reconstruction, a therapeutic approach to the treatment of adult children of dysfunction, has been an outgrowth of these years of experience. Dr. Hinman has published Changing Attitudes in Recovery, a handbook on esteem, and several articles on adult children. In addition, he has published a chapter with his wife, Sonia, Cognitive Perceptual Reconstruction in the Treatment of Alcoholism. With the help of a steering committee of recovering individuals, he has founded CARE self-help groups. He is currently in full-time practice as a psychologist with Psychological Associates in Modesto. Dr. Hinman's presentation, Building Healthy Self-Esteem, Relaxing into Change, is co-sponsored by Psychological Associates and Modesto Psychiatric Center. It is presented in three parts. Part 1, The Basis of Self-Esteem. Part 2, Relaxing into Healthy Self-Esteem. And Part 3, Building Blocks for Healthy Self-Esteem. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Hinman. Wow. <laughs> There's more of you than there are of me, I, I can tell from quick count. Didn't have to take my shoes off to figure that one out. It's nice to realize just from the faces that I see that I'm not alone as an adult child. I want you to think about that just for a moment before we begin the talk. Notice that you're also not the only one here in the room. Take a look around. It's nice to have company. It's nice to realize that we're not unique in our woundedness. Nor do we have to stay stuck in our woundedness. Eric was real correct when he said we're both sick puppies. <laughs> who happen to be really enjoying the journey. You know, recovery without humor, recovery without enjoyment is a drag. You know, it's like... Isn't it fun? Huh? Doesn't that seem so inviting to you? Let's just all tighten up our sphincters around our neck and be good enough to be recovered. Huh? I don't like pain. And I love pleasure. I love pleasure. And the more I would try to change, the more I'd stay stuck. And the more I'd stay stuck, the harder I would try. And it would become a vicious circle. Lots of heat, no light. And it's only when I began to realize that by relaxing into the process, and it is a process. Bad news, it's a lifetime process. Good news, don't rush. <laughs> Right? I want mine to be a long journey. 
Because it's a lifetime. You never get there. You never, ever get there. There ain't no there, there. But it can be a wonderful journey. It's been about 15 years that I've been on this path. It gets more fun every year. The people I'm on the path with, family, my wife, my kids, friends, care partners, it just gets better. It gets different as you move along the path. It gets easier. You begin to form new habits. You begin to realize you don't die when you're uncomfortable. I still hate giving talks. And I love giving talks. I hate the nervousness before. And even though I've given lots and lots of talks, I still get nervous. It's called recovering, not recovered. So if you're nervous hearing what I have to say, enjoy being uncomfortable. I hope I make you all comfortably uncomfortable tonight. It means you're using muscles that may be a little new. And that's great. I told myself, oh, about four weeks ago, that I would share a story at the beginning of the talk. So I'm going to do that now. I want you to start by picturing a little six-year-old boy with a butch haircut and kind of a toe-head, sandy-colored hair out in right field on the baseball diamond. It's called peewees in those days. That's before they had um, t-ball. I've been coaching t-ball for a number of years because you didn't have to catch. Catching was optional with t-ball. They have a little incredible ball. It's real soft. But when I was a kid, I had to walk 20 miles through 10 feet of snow in Modesto. <laughs> but they had a hard ball. They had a hard ball when I was a kid. And I want you to picture this little six-year-old kid out in right field with a rock in his stomach, hoping that no one would hit him the ball. Can you picture this little kid? Now picture someone hitting the ball to right field. Now being the skilled sportsman that he is, what's the smartest thing to do if a ball's coming at you? Of course, close your eyes. <laughs> if the ball can't see you, you're safe. So here's this little kid like this. The ball hits right here. I learned right then I don't do baseball. <laughs> and being a bright kid that didn't know that he was bright, and in fact I am bright, and that's not bragging, it's just, it's true. There's brighter people, but it's not a contest. But being a bright kid, I generalized I don't do baseball to I don't do sports. And I generalized I don't do sports to 
I'm not really a man. Because men do sports. Men catch baseballs. Everyone knows that. At least as a six-year-old, I knew that. And I kept that as part of my self-esteem, part of my self-hatred, <clears throat> year after year into adult life. And then God played a terrible trick on me. He gave me sons. <laughs> when Sonia was pregnant, I used to pray, Lord, give me daughters. Daughters don't play baseball. You know? I thought I'd have it covered. So what do I get? Two boys. So I decided I had to somehow learn to catch the ball. For my boys. If not for me, for my sons, Jesse and Nathan. A good friend of mine, Dave Brashears, was forming a baseball team at uh, Rainbow Field, softball. E-League. That's A, B, C, D, E, no F, E, right? And he had a team that he was calling Just Friends. So I signed up. I said, no, I understand this is E-League. Catching is optional. No problem, Jim. No problem. So I played on the team. Had a rock in my stomach in right field every time. Closed my eyes when the ball would come out. Used the same strategy I'd used when I was six. You notice how that happens? You notice we use the same strategies that don't work again and again and again? Me too. And I played until we started to win. When we started to win, the guys on the team started taking it seriously. And it was no longer safe for Jimmy to be out there, because I still couldn't catch the ball. It takes a lot of practice to get the depth of field, to get the sense of how far the ball is going to be. And every time I'd stand there, and if I could pry one eye open to see where the ball was coming, if it got to my glove by accident, I'd be so shocked that it would bounce to the ground. And this would always be with the bases loaded, you know, and we needed those points. So I quit. And I said, I ain't going to do it no more. Notice the formal grammar. Well, Dave came back and said, Jim, we're going to do just friends again. E-League, and I promise you, we're not going to win. <laughs> you don't have to worry. You don't have to catch the ball, but we'd love to have you on the team. Now, for a little boy in a, an adult body, but I said recovering, not recovered, the idea of guys wanting me to be on the team was something I dreamed of. I would cry myself to sleep, craving the wanting of inclusion. Now, I'm probably real unique, and none of you have probably had that experience. But that was my experience. I couldn't turn it down. I said, well, Dave, um, the whole season, um, can I maybe play half a game each game? So we struck a deal. First game, I'm out in right field, first inning, 
Second inning, third inning, not one ball to right field. I'm saying, thank you! <laughs> this is okay! No one hits you the ball, you don't make any mistakes! Huh? It works that way. But then it came time to bat. You know? On right field, maybe you don't get the ball, but when you're at the plate, <laughs> you get the ball. So here I am. There's a guy on first. We're down two runs. I can't, you can see my knees? Okay, this isn't excitement, it's sheer terror. Now, let me paint a little more of an accurate picture here. Half of the audience, or what do you call it, the spectators, were there to see me. My boys, Jesse and Nathan, were there. My mother-in-law, her sister from Italy, her sister's best friend from Italy. I mean, this is going to be a national, international calamity. You know? We may go to war with Italy. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen here. But something terrible may happen. My wife is there. I'm up. And a ball comes. First ball. Bap! And I hit it between shortstop. What is it? Yeah. I'm, let's just talk baseball, between shortstop and third, right in that area. Now, can you picture this so far? We got a guy on first, I hit the ball, it's a grounder, that's what you want to do in softball, is hit grounders. Hey, this ain't too bad, you know? So I watch our guy run to second as I'm running to first. And I'm running, and I'm running, and I fall flat on my face. You know the guy in the, in the Dodgers that does all of the sliding, stealing? Um, somebody help me out that knows baseball. The guy that has the, the world record for a number of bases stole. Henderson, Ricky Henderson. I did a perfect Ricky Henderson slide toward first. You don't slide to first, right? Details. Recovery is all about details. But as I slid like this between here and maybe this woman from first base, three things come to me almost at the same time. I'm trying to get my legs to work. It's like, you know, these cartoons, you see the toes and the fingers sort of going like this, carrying the body. I'm trying to crawl to first base. And it's real clear, I ain't going to make it. My first thought, now this, I was hurt. I actually ended up uh, straining some ligaments or whatever in the, in the rib cage and a big uh, gash in my, in my knee. That was nothing. My first thought is, try to get to first. The second thought was, God, this is going to make a great story. <laughs> As I am crawling to first base, instantaneously it's, God, this is going to be a great story. I Maybe it's going to help somebody. The third thought was, I know that my sons love me. I know they respect me. They look up to me. And I know someday they're going to fall on their face in something. Now, they're both very athletic. I'm not sure where the genetics came from. It wasn't for me. But they're going to fall on their face someday, in some way. 
if they can remember this, that their dad, who they respect and who they look up to, can fall on his face without hating himself, what a gift. Just take a moment to comprehend that gift. In the midst of my fallibility is a gift to two of the people I love most in the world. Jesse, who's 10, and Nathan, who's 8. Now, to be honest with you, I'd rather have gotten to first base. <laughs> okay, It's always more fun to get to first base than not get to first base. I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't do this intentionally you know, in order to have this story. I didn't do it intentionally to have this illustration for my kids. But to me, that's what recovery is all about. Sure, you want to get to first base. It's fun to win. But if you do fall flat on your face, you have a choice. You can hate yourself. You can reject yourself. And get nothing out of it except loss. Or you can figure, ah, that's a good story. And maybe some value can come out of this. And suddenly, out of the jaws of defeat comes some success. Now, I got a lot of razzing in that game. I'm like, come on, Henderson, you're not supposed to ride into, you know, slide into first base. And some people actually thought it was such a good slide, they really thought it was a slide, and I, I didn't tell them the difference. So I didn't know you couldn't slide to first. I don't always believe in honesty is the best policy. <laughs> Sometimes I forget and fudge a little bit, you know, it's, it's imperfection. But I couldn't play for the next two games because I had hurt myself, actually. Uh, it would hurt to, to breathe. I'd, I don't know, something in the cartilage in the, in the ribs. And then I played again. And I was out there in right field with Jimmy. And a couple of balls came my way. And I missed him. And he wanted to die. And I put my arm around him and said, hey, so what? It would be more fun if we caught it, but so what? The difference between standing in right field dropping the ball today versus dropping the ball at age 6 or 10 is that today I still hate dropping the ball, but I don't hate me. I'm not the ball. I'm me. Take a moment to think about the difference. I'm not the ball. I'm not the mistake. I'm me, making a mistake. That's the difference in terms of esteem. A little difference that makes a profound impact once you get it. In that particular game, this last game I played, I was up to bat three times. Three times. First time up, and we were getting killed. We were, we were quite a bit behind. There's a pattern with that with this team. I'm so glad. I feel at home. Bases were loaded. There were two out. 
I was up. No pressure. No pressure. Now Jesse, age 10, is an incredible baseball player. And I would see him over and over again over the years be in this position. And my heart would always go out from, oh, poor guy. My heart went out to me. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> but I said to myself, hey, oh well. You know, I'm supposed to believe all this recovery stuff. I might as well try it on. The worst I can do is what happened last time. It ain't going to get much worse than that. I can't imagine it getting any worse than that. <laughs> the first time up, I hit it right over the shortstop's head. Great hit. I got to first base and got an RBI. That's man talk for run battered in. <laughs> it was it was wonderful. It was as wonderful as it was terrible dropping the ball. It was one of the high points of my life. Later, came up again. Got to first base. Didn't even trip. Third time up, and we're getting killed. We're really getting killed by this point. Bases loaded, two out. And I keep saying, Lord, come on, cut a little slack, you know? Why don't you let the other guy strike out or something? Why me? Now, you've never thought that, have you? <laughs> you've never had that unique feeling of, why me? Here I am working on my recovery. How come you do this to me? That's the kind of relationship I have with my big brother. It's, it's very informal. That's how we talk. So I get up there. First pitch. You're not supposed to hit the first pitch. You're supposed to let the first one go by. I was too nervous to let it go by. I hit it again. I got to first base and got another RBI. And it was just as good as the first one. It was wonderful. But I'm also not that RBI. I'm not the mistake. I'm not the success. I'm me. It's easy to confuse the RBI with me. It's easy to confuse the mistake with me. Neither of those two doings is my being. What is self-esteem? You're probably wondering when I'm going to get around to start the talk, right? <laughs> self-esteem is how we feel about our self-image. How we feel about how we see ourselves. At the core, it's an internal perception of who we are. It's that sense of personal character that organizes all of our perceptions. To me, that's what self-esteem is. Now, I shared with you a story around my self-esteem. I want you to take a moment to share a story with yourself about your self-esteem. I want you to take a moment with your eyes open or closed or one of each. But you got to do one of them.
there's going to be somebody out there going, see, how can I resist this? If I open one halfway and close one halfway, am I resisting? Those of you that are resistors in the process of recovery, welcome aboard. I've been a resistor my whole life. It doesn't work any better for me than it does for you. But take a moment to get a sense of who you are. Who is Jim Henman? Who is Jean? Who is Velmer? Who's Sonia, Betty? Who am I? And just notice what comes into focus as you relax into that question. As you relax into that question, what do you see? What do you notice? What do you hear? And how do you feel about what you see and what you hear? Take a moment to do this. Begin to be aware of who you are in your own mind. And how you feel about who you are. And what do you base it on? What do you base that self-esteem on? I would really invite you to continue this exercise again and again and again until you're able to really get clearly in focus clearly tuned in to what's being said, who you are in your own mind, and how you feel about who you are in your own mind. We come from a society that tends to assume what we don't know won't hurt us. Sort of like my mentality, if I close my eyes, the ball can't get me. It works fine until the ball comes. You do need to pay attention. You do need to listen and look and see who you are. And to begin to ask, what do you base it on? Do you say, I like me because I hit an RBI? I like me because I'm handsome and virile. Trust me, that goes. Mine was there for about 10 seconds back in 71. <laughs> Tried to grab it and couldn't quite catch it. What do we base our self-esteem on currently? How we look? How much money we make? The kind of job, the kind of education? What do we base our self-esteem on? Our society is so externally oriented that it seduces us into believing our self-esteem, our self-worth, is based on those kind of external criteria. 
If I can just make 50,000. To show you how things change, when I was graduating from high school, I was choosing between being a de debate coach or a psychologist. Now, I couldn't spell psychologist and I didn't try to spell debate coach, but I looked at JC, to where I went, Modesto Junior College, to start. S debate coaches made $6,000 a year. Psychologists made twelve. Whoa, man, can you just imagine making twelve thousand today? With a PhD? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And I knew I could never get a doctorate. I thought maybe, maybe I could get a master's and make nine. Or maybe I could do something with a bachelor's. I knew I couldn't get a doctorate. So I decided to go into psychology. And I are here today. <laughs> and I make more than 12,000. I make a real good living. But you know the real payment is right out here. The folks from CARE, those of you that are wondering whether you want to care about yourself and about others. But see, the trouble is, that doesn't show up on a bank account. But that's what makes me feel so rich. It has nothing to do with money. Nothing to do with money. But I decided, as a freshman, that if I could touch one life and somehow give meaning to that one life, then I've justified my existence you know, for taking up space, which is how I felt about myself at that time as I was taking up space. So if I could justify it by helping one person, then I was even. Anything above that was gravy. Now you may recognize that as codependency. And I had a black belt in codependency. I was good at codependency. I did codependency real well. To the point of taking hostages instead of having friends. But you know, so what? So what? I'm really not codependent today, but I still love touching lives. Not because I need to, but because it has value for me. It feels good to do that. It's selfish. Tonight is very selfish. Care is very selfish. It's not self-centered, but it is selfish. Because there's no more effective way of taking good care of self, which to me what an ideal definition of selfish would be is taking real good care of self, isn't it? Think about it. Taking real good care of self would be a good way to define selfish. Self-centered is not very selfish. Self-centered, self-absorbed sucks canal water, clinically speaking. I, this jargon just keeps popping in from all my years of training. But the fact is, 
We need to fight this insidious conditioning that our value, our worth is based on hitting home runs, that only number one counts, that if you don't come in first, you don't count, you don't have value. There can only be one first place. What about second, third, tenth, fifteenth? What I want you to consider is what you base it on. And if what you base it on is external, I invite you, and it truly is an invitation, to consider changing your mind. In care, we call that going north to Turlock from Modesto. Some of you have heard that or seen it in the handbook. It's when you get on 99 going north to get to Turlock, which happens to be south of Modesto. And you get up to Ukiah, Oregon border, <laughs> and wonder where Turlock is, and you may decide at some point to turn around. Or you may just gun it a little faster. <laughs> it's got to be here somewhere. I'll get there. Enough black coffee. Enough gasoline, I'll get the Turlock. We do what doesn't work over and over and over again, don't we? That's the human condition. I mean, I was still using the same strategy of closing my eyes that I did when I was six, and it doesn't work, I promise you. It doesn't work to close your eyes to catch a baseball. But I still do it. If you don't like what you see, realize that it's written in pencil. That self-image is written in pencil. We just don't know it. We think it's written in Indian ink. That's just the way I am. I'm just the way I am. Now, I know you've never said that to yourself, but you've probably heard others that have said that. Right? I can't do this. I can't do that. That's not how I am. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you're already dead. <laughs> Stupid me. I thought I saw you breathing. And if you're breathing, you can change. If you aren't breathing, you'll still change. It's called rigor mortis. But it's not as much fun. It's not nearly as flexible. But the fact is, if you're alive, you can change. Will you change? I don't know. Will you like the changes? I don't know. But the capacity for change, I know. The capacity for change, I believe, with every fiber of my being. It's okay for someone to sit across from me in therapy and to say, I don't want to change. Okay, no problem. What do you want to do for the hour? You know, I'm not real inexpensive. I, in private practice, I cost money. What would you like to do with the time? Woe be it to the person that wants to convince themselves that they can't change and sit in my office. It's real uncomfortable. It's real uncomfortable. 
because I will not believe that. I believe you have the right not to change. You don't have to change for me, but you got to be accurate. And accuracy says you can change. The question is, are you willing? See, I came face to face after this last baseball game with a, a realization. I don't like baseball. <laughs> Hear this now, guys. This is real important. I really don't like baseball. I don't like to watch baseball. I don't like to play baseball. It's a boring sport. Now, I know I'll get lynched by some of you. I'm sorry. Soccer. Now, there's a game. I coach soccer, and I love it. I don't like baseball. I have nothing to prove. I'm not going to continue playing baseball. But I know I can. And if I was going to choose to continue playing baseball, you know what I would do? I'd get my brother, oh, my brother, <laughs> or some other friends. And that concludes disc A. Please insert disc B.